There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory will discuss her stories and answer your questions. The focus is on craft. Lane is an award-winning storyteller who prefers to write about people in the shadows. She once went to work with a 100-year-old man who still swept out a seafood warehouse and also hung out beneath a bridge with a colony of sex offenders. I'm Lane's boss, Maria Carrillo, the Enterprise Editor at The Times. For our introductory podcast, we're going to revisit The Girl in the Window, Lane's iconic story about a feral child. That story has been read by more than 1.5 million people and counting, translated into a dozen languages, and won Lane the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing in 2009. The Times created a new online presentation for the story and re-released it recently to refresh people's memories before we published a story about Danielle Lero now, 10 years after being adopted. Tune in to next week's podcast to hear more about how Danny's doing and how Lane reported that story. But first, let's go back to the summer of 2008. How do you write a story that breaks your heart? I'm going to ask Lane to read a little bit from the beginning of The Girl in the Window. The family had lived in the rundown rental house for almost three years when someone first saw a child's face in the window. A little girl, pale with dark eyes, lifted a dirty blanket above the broken glass and peered out, one neighbor remembered. Everyone knew a woman lived in the house with her boyfriend and two adult sons, but they'd never seen a child there and never noticed anyone playing in the overgrown yard. The girl looked young, five or six, and thin, too thin. Her cheeks seemed sunken. Her eyes were lost. The child stared into the square of sunlight, then slipped away. Months went by. The face never reappeared. Just before noon on July 13, 2005, a Plant City police car pulled up outside that shattered window. Two officers went into the house, and one stumbled back out. Clutching his stomach, the rookie retched in the weeds. Plant City detective Mark Holstey had been on the force for 18 years when he and his young partner were sent to the house on Old Sydney Road to stand by during a child abuse investigation. Someone had finally called the police. They found a car parked outside. The driver's door was open, and a woman was slumped over in her seat, sobbing. She was an investigator for the Florida Department of Children and Families. Unbelievable, she told Holstie. The worst I've ever seen. The police officers walked through the front door into a cramped living room. I've been in rooms with bodies riding there for a week, and it never stunk that bad, Holstie said later. There's just no way to describe it. Urine and feces, dog, cat, and human excrement smeared on the walls, mashed into the carpet, everything dank and rotting. Tattered curtains, yellow with cigarette smoke, dangling from bent metal rods. Cardboard and old comforters stuffed into broken, grimy windows. Trash blanketing the stained couch, the sticky counters. The floor, walls, even the ceiling seemed to sway beneath legions of scuttling roaches. 
It sounded like you were walking on eggshells. You couldn't take a step without crunching German cockroaches, the detective said. They were in the lights, in the furniture, even inside the freezer. The freezer! A hostie looked around. A stout woman in a faded housecoat demanded to know what was going on. Yes, she lived there. Yes, those were her two sons in the living room. Her daughter? Well, yes, she had a daughter. The detective strode past her, down a narrow hall. He turned the handle on a door, which opened into the space the size of a walk-in closet. He squinted in the dark. At his feet, something stirred. The story is uh, is still so riveting, both for the details and the way you told it. So when did you know? When did you know you had this this kind of powerful story in your hands? I mean, right from the get-go? I mean, how did that... Well, we got a call um, in January of 2008 from a woman at the Heart Gallery, which puts kids up for adoption. And she basically said she'd been working there for like 20 years and had never heard of a feral child. And they had a feral child who had come into this Heart Gallery and needed adopting. So that kind of first piqued my interest, like something I thought a feral child was like Mowgli from the Jungle Book or something. You know, I didn't know it was a thing you could have in 21st century Florida in the middle of a residential community. So that piqued my interest. But we thought it was going to be like, we started in January, and we thought it was going to be like a really cool Easter story. So we were going to follow her. By the time we found out about her, she had a family that was taking her in. Um, so we thought we'd follow her for a couple months and see what it was like for her to live with his family. But the more we got into the story um, and the more we realized like how really rare feral children were, I think that's when we started realizing this is something really, really different. Um and the story, from the beginning, it had, like, these two ends. Like, one was such despair of what could have been done to this little girl. How could a mother do that to her own child? And the other was this great hope. Like, this amazing family took her in and is going to give her a second chance. So I think, from the beginning, it had these two really powerful um, ends of the emotional spectrum. Why Easter? Why were you going <laughs> to... Usually back then it was like you could usually have like three months to write a story and we thought it would be a good rebirth story for Sunday. You know, it's like a, a hopeful rebirthy thing and, and the family was very Christian and thought God had given her to them. So uh, it okay. just seemed like a nice Easter story, but it, it wasn't ready by then. <laughs> so talk a little bit about the reporting challenges with this story, because, of course, I always found it fascinating that you have a character who can't. You can't get inside her head. And that's one of the things that you do really well is get inside people's heads. So what was that like? Yeah, that, that was the hardest part because we didn't really know when we got there that she couldn't talk at all. Um, she was nine by the time we met her. And my son was nine and a total chatterbox. And so I was just really envisioning writing the story through a nine-year-old's point of view. And, of course, she not only did she not talk to us she didn't look at us she didn't even know we were there so from the photographer's standpoint it was like golden because she completely ignored her all the time you could capture her but from from my perspective it was like oh holy cow what am I going to do you know I can't none of her backstory was able to be told because the only thing anybody knew was since they found her you know so um it took a little while to convince the family that they even should let us do a story about her. They were very hesitant that it would be like detrimental, that it would make her look like an animal somehow, and it would be um, not respectful to her. So it took us a little while to convince them to let us in to tell the story, um, and we ended up telling it, explaining like if if they could take in a child that had this many needs, maybe somebody else would be inspired to take in another child. And I think that was enough of them to feel like okay, some good could come of this. It's not just a oh my god, you know crazy sideshow thing going on. We saw a picture of her on the bulletin board and 
This is Diane and Bernie Lero, Danny's adoptive parents. I can't explain what it was about her, but we just, I started asking questions about her. We stood in line to ask the questions, and then we'd go talk it over, and I'd get back in line again to ask a couple more questions that we would think of. And I, I really can't explain what drew us to her. Something just did. We figure it's like a God thing. He just kind of pulled on our hearts that that is the child that we should go for. Did they realize how much time you guys were going to end up spending with them? Did you you, uh, talk about that at the start? No, I've kind of learned over all these years of trying to, like, embed in someone's life that you can't go, hey, I'm moving in for six months, you know, that's okay. (laughs) So I I have this analogy, like, I want to put my toe in the door, and then I want to, like, put my knee in the door, and by the time I leave, I'm doing fan kicks through your bedroom, you know? So we we kind of pushed it slowly, and uh, we literally started on the porch on the deck with no camera and no notebook, and then we kind of moved into the living room, and then we were like, show us Danny's bedroom, and then they were like, would you like to stay for dinner? So, you know, it just, it kind of, like, incrementally went bit by bit um they lived almost three hours away from us so i think it would have been a very different reporting process if they were right here in st petersburg we probably would have gone every week if not every day you know to check on them but because it was a drive away and because they both worked we went for weekends at a time so in the six months we were reporting the story i think we went eight different weekends um and we were staying in like a little Holiday Inn, and by the second or third time we were there, they were like, where are you staying? And we said, oh, we're in the Holiday Inn up the road. And they're like, well, you could just stay here. So then we knew. That's that's when we were in, you know, like the family invites you to sleep over. And we got amazing things that night that we wouldn't have gotten if we just left when they went to bed. Did you keep trying to, to communicate with Danny? Did you keep trying to I, I make a connection there? Or was it obvious that you were not going to have that? It, it was kind of obvious, and I also started feeling like I was in the way because I was changing things by trying to communicate with Danny. I spent a lot more time playing with her brother, Willie, because he was 10 and really loquacious, and he gave me a lot of great insight that I wasn't getting from her parents, you know. So actually, Melissa and I, we, we went to every—Melissa Little was a photographer, and we went to every reporting thing together, but a lot of times she'd end up hanging out with Danny by herself somewhere, and I'd end up playing with Willie or talking to the parents. And and uh, did you get stuff from Melissa in terms of, was Melissa kind of being, a, you know, giving you some reporting that she was doing? Oh, yeah. Melissa's a great reporter. I mean, that was one reason I loved doing this story with her. So she and I would feed each other different things. You know, I'd learn something from the mom and dad about, oh, my God, they're going to the beach next week. We got to go to the beach. You know, and she'd be like, oh, Danny took her socks off as soon as Bernie said, keep your socks on, you know, and walked out the door. And so, yeah, we were definitely feeding each other. And, and Danny really didn't. I don't even know if she noticed Melissa was there. You know, that was the other kind of interesting thing. She she really she didn't recoil from us. She just didn't notice, you know. So I've heard you talk about having to approach the birth mother and how difficult that was. And your editor at the time, Mike Wilson, pushed you to do it. So what was he hoping for and what were you fearful of? I, I just thought the story was going to start when she got rescued. I kind of just thought all this bad stuff that happened in the past, we can talk about that through the police report, but I, I didn't want to interview the woman that did this to her because I just felt so... Like, I usually fall in love with my subjects, and I hated this woman without knowing anything about her except what she'd done to this little girl, so I felt that would be really hard to be objective. And I was also, I couldn't put aside my mother piece, you know, of looking at it as a mother, not... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Just a journalist, like, how, how dare you, you know? So I had a lot of incredulity toward her that I thought I wasn't going to be able to be a good objective journalist. Um, but Mike was really insistent that we needed to know her backstory, that we needed to know to, to see how far Danny was going to come or to see what her what she was overcoming more like, I guess. We had to see where she came from and why that happened. And the only person that could explain that was the birth mother. So, I mean, he probably came to my desk 12 times in two weeks and was like, did you get the birth mother? I got a great interview with a psychiatrist. Did you get the birth mother? No, I went to horseback riding therapy. Did you get the birth mother? And he just like, he was not going to let me off the hook. So we finally had to go track her down and that was an adventure. <laughs> and that was not a, yeah, I remember. So you you guys didn't want to get out of the car. Yeah, we, we took us like three days to find her. And then we finally found her. And then Melissa was like, I'm too angry. I can't go up to the door. So we drove around the block like three times. And then I'm texting Mike. This is where we are. Like we thought, you know, we saw her mugshot. She's a big giant woman. And we thought if she did this to her little daughter, what's she going to do to journalists knocking on her door? So I'm usually not scared, but I was a little wary about what kind of rancor I was going to you know, dig up. And then she let you in. And then she started talking. And she let us in. And she, she made it worse. Cupcakes. <laughs> she offered us kittens. She had, and then she started crying. And it was completely, completely unexpected, her reaction. I begged her, please don't take my baby. And that's how it all started. Hello, my name is Michelle Crockett. I'm Danielle's mom. If it wasn't for bad luck, I have no luck at all. Uh, we moved to Florida to get a new start. And I had one disaster after another. They came, they took my daughter. I didn't have a chance to do anything. If they couldn't attack me one way about her physically, they were attacking me about her mentally. Oh, you made her autistic because you kept her in the house. I thought she would just flow, because my son, he didn't potty train till he was almost four, but she was almost six, and I was really getting worried because she would potty train. I miss her smile. Just being with her. The one thing she kept saying that I think is a good lesson for any journalist was like, no one ever asked me my side of the story. You guys are the first people who asked me my side of the story. Now, a lot of her story was BS, and it didn't necessarily make things any better, but she felt like she'd been empowered to tell her part of the story, and I think it did help you understand a little bit about how Danny got there. Yeah. So... For this story, you interviewed all these people, came in contact with her and tried to save her. You spent time with the family and with her. You looked through all these police records, court documents. Was there something you didn't get that you really, really wanted? Or did you feel like this was the kind of story where, yeah, you got pretty much access to everything? I I really wanted um, her brothers, her birth brothers. They were 19 and 21, 22, and I felt like... They would have been able to give so much insight into what was going on in that home. Uh, the mom was so, the birth mother was so defensive and so narcissistic and so just like trying to paint everything was being done to her, you know. I, I knew the older son had um, testified in the custody hearing and basically said, I told my mom to take her to the doctor, you know. So he was aware enough to know something was amiss. Um, he wouldn't talk to me. And the younger brother, the mother wouldn't let me talk to him. He was like special needs. and But, yeah, 
So that was what I felt like I was really missing was the two other people in the house. And the boys were old enough to like, I mean, to know better, right? I mean, one was what you said, you special needs, but I mean, they, so there's part of you that must be thinking they're complicit in all of this or they're a part of all of this. I mean, they didn't, they didn't feed her. They didn't protect her. They left her in that closet or whatever that space was, right? Absolutely. And I think the mother left her with them a lot. Like, I think the mother was not home a lot. So mm-hmm. the boys were just, uh, I don't even call them babysitters. They were what, placeholders there or something? I don't know. <laughs> what was the house like when you got there? Was it as nasty as the detective described? Yeah, it had been almost two years, you know, since they had taken her from there. But the house had not been inhabited during that time. So the lady who lived next door had bought it and she let us in and it was basically like as disgusting as it was in the evidence photos from the police officer the mattress was still there on the floor all the naked wires the broken windows the rats the snakes the poop i mean it was yeah nobody had (laughs) cleaned it up but i mean as a reporter what a treasure trove to get to go sit in that room that's been untouched for two years and really as close as you could come to feeling what it was like to be Danny stuck in there, you know, mm-hmm. that was a, a, a huge gift to be able to like actually be in that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect there was a lot of reporting that didn't make it into the story. Do you, do you remember something that you were really sorry to lose or that you, or that you were happy to lose actually when in retrospect? I had a lot more about um, the birth mother and the justice system. I had a lot more people wagging fingers about why didn't she do more time. Um, And Mike and I talked about it. It felt more like an editorial than part of my story. So he helped me condense that part greatly. And then the editorial board did write a story about how could this have happened. And so that freed me up, I think, from those pieces of it. But then we just had lots of great scenes, you know, that that we lost. We we lost him at church. We lost him at the beach. We lost um, another day of horseback riding therapy, you know. So just things that that probably were repetitive of things we'd already witnessed, but at the time, at the moment, were like amazing scenes. The one thing that um, I think was important that got cut out, but that I I really wrote the cat the bejesus out of it was this one scene where she um she completely went into a tantrum and she had pooed her diaper and she was running around the whole house during the dinner smearing poo on the the tv the wall the dogs the rug herself her brother and it was like an amazing scene to see it was like as bad as bad as it gets you know with, with what she was dealing with and melissa's clicking away on the camera and i'm taking notes and we're both like holy cow what's going on here you know and we wrote it and we photographed it and Mike basically said, you don't need that. You know, you, you don't need to show her acting like a baboon in her living room when you can talk about she needs help potty training. And we substituted out a scene for her sitting on the little potty, being bribed with M&Ms and a teddy bear to learn how to use the potty instead of showing this kind of horrific meltdown. Oh, well, that, that's an interesting dilemma because I, yeah, it's so. Because you don't get to see stuff like that often, you know, yeah. and you're witnessing it and you're thinking, this is what I need to tell the readers is going on. This is what this family is dealing with. You know, it was so dramatic, but it, it was degrading too. Yeah. So. Oh, man. So you reread the story recently, I gather, after a, quite a while, right? So were you happy with it? I was, I'm more happy with the effect of it, I think, than the story itself. But yeah, I, I, it wasn't one of those stories that I wrote like, oh my God, I, I wish I'd never see the light of day again. You know, yeah, this, I mean, 
I worked on this story harder than any story I'd worked on before, and I got more editing on it, and I got more feedback on it. So it's, it's not just me that I made this awful, awesome thing by myself. It was like, it was this was the first time I really felt like we had a whole team of people um, involved in the project. So yeah, but the end result, the fact that like a dozen kids got adopted and child abuse hotline calls went up and a bunch of money got raised and a bunch of awareness got raised, I think, you know, that's that's the part I'm proud of. So I don't think I ever asked you this back then, but like, so right after the story ran, did, was there an immediate reaction? I mean, obviously it got, it was celebrated so much in the months later, but did there, what was the reaction right at first when the story first came out? Yeah, this story was kind of like an interesting, like seminal moment in in terms of the Tampa Bay Times. I think we were a little behind some of the other papers in terms of like web production and all. But this is the first story we'd done that had like an audio video component for the web, and that they put up on the web before it went into print. So before it was, you know, most of the stories like your story comes out in the paper on Sunday and it goes up on the web and it's just the type with maybe one photo. This was like, oh, we're doing a multimedia presentation, and it went up on a Thursday. Um, I think about lunchtime and before it even came out in the paper on Sunday it had crashed the website because so many people had read it and shared it and passed it around got picked up on all these other like aggregating sites that were just getting started like the Huffington Post and things like that that all of a sudden the audience got huge before it even went in print so that was really surprising I really think it was a combination of that just such a such a unique subject matter and then the way you told it, it was really very, very spare and, like, awful. <laughs> but, I mean, like, every part of it was awful. But you're right. There's a little bit of hope in the middle with this family. But then, you know, like, when you start and you discover her and she's – it's just terrible. And then the birth mother was awful. And it just – but it it evokes so much um, – so many emotions, I guess. That was that what that story did in I, every I direction. That's why it succeeded. Yeah. yeah. Any, if you wanted to be mad, you could be mad. If you wanted to be hopeful, you could be hopeful. If right. you wanted to go, oh, my God, these amazing people, I could never do that, that was there, too. You know? yeah. And everybody, you know, I think everybody who, who touched her wanted to help save her. So there were all these myriad of people from the cop to the speech therapist to the teacher to the minister to whoever, you know, everybody was like, I'll help save her, you know, mm-hmm. and... She was at that, like, really questionable time of whether it was too late or not. Nobody knew. Okay, as we finish this first podcast, I should point out that this was not Lane's idea. Uh Uh, (laughs) This was inspired by other people who thought that uh, Lane would be a great uh, subject for a podcast. So uh, now we're going to turn it over to listeners and say to you that if you have a question for Lane about the girl in the window or any of her stories, really, you can email us at writelane at tampabay.com and that's w-r-i-t-e-l-a-n-e at tampabay.com and please join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next episode this podcast was produced by Denise Keenan guidance was provided by Craig Kopp general manager at WMNF 88.5 and our friends at the Pointer Institute for Media Studies music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory thanks for listening Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.